The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Your talents are wasted here. You're stating the obvious, my dear. Babysitting a bunch of humans in the boondocks. A man, well, <laughs> reptile of your stature and intelligence should clearly be ruling the empire. Mm. Unfortunately, my grotesque little minx, <gasps> the magistrates do not agree. They see one such as myself, a leader of vision and power, and they quake. What if I could deliver the empire to you? You're human. Your uses are breeding and mining, and the occasional hors d'oeuvre. I can offer you something that will bring your opponents to their knees. What could you possibly have that would be of use to me? Technology? I come from a world full of wonders. With me at your side, Tribune, entire continents will lay themselves at your feet. The whole empire will be at your mercy. The forces of my world are politics, soldiers, slaves. What you speak of is magic, superstition. Not magic. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, May 28th, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing. It's just... To black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright And welcome to our show today. You know, politics, soldiers, and slaves were the calling cards of all past so-called civilizations with the recent evolution of capitalism, the last part, slavery, was finally omitted from that formula. Though sadly, we are headed back towards slavery mentality, thanks to the confusion that reigns about politics in general. And, uh, you know, if you tuned in last week to our show, and that's sort of why Robert's not here today, I told him, geez, you really have to do a follow-up to last week's show. We left a lot of un- Un, unopened, uh, or a lot of open endings, let's put it that way. And I don't think that our conversation with Bill Gardner last week uh, helped resolve some of the confusion, but it did very much help illustrate the difference between what's being called conservatism and a freedom philosophy. Before I begin with that, just to remind you, you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org or visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. Now, if you missed last week's show, you don't have to have heard it to understand where I'm going with it this week, but my conversation with Bill Gardner on last week's broadcast was certainly an engaging one. 
Bill, of course, would uh, fit into the category of being right-wing as opposed to our own mantra of being not right-wing but just right. Got an email from listener Jack who wrote, quote, Boy, I could hear the frustration in your voice today when you were talking to Bill. He has it pretty twisted. It's a shame when someone you want to agree with is so far off, end quote. Well, yeah, there was some frustration there. I don't know if it was so much frustration. Uh, um, uh, it's hard to say what it was, but, you know, Bill had his own agenda, and he had his points that he wanted to make, and it's not our job to, you know, just totally refute things that we disagree with. We want to get the, the, the speaker to get his points out, and there's a lot of things he said that we did agree with. But it certainly made for an interesting discussion, one that will serve as an example, I think, of the differences between being just right, not right-wing, and being a conservative, which Robert and I might jokingly say is just being just wrong and right-wing. So today I'll be exploring these terms and commenting on our discussion last week with Bill. Now, Bill was talking about his book, uh, The Great Divide, and in that book he had a chart. We didn't get into it in great detail, but the chart itself was very interesting. And in the chart that's in his book, The Great Divide, it's headed, Where Do You Stand? And there are two columns. The one on the left is headed, The Enlightenment, dash Roots of Modern Liberalism. And the one on the right headed, The Counter-Enlightenment, or The Roots of Conservatism. It seemed to me that Bill's objective in writing The Great Divide was not to suggest any solutions to this divide, but to make clear and to state that the Great Divide cannot be bridged and to help people identify on which side of the divide they might happen to sit. And there were six chosen categories in which each, each side was compared. Sex, marriage, and divorce, preferred method of organization, the law, religion, international vision, and main thinkers. Now, on the basis of these categories, we're supposed to know where we stand, quote-unquote. But my, in my case, I was nowhere to be found in this chart comparison. Freedom was not on either agenda, and it wasn't even mentioned or considered as a valid category to be considered on the chart, which I thought is a rather, you know, great thing that's missing. And yes, freedom is at the core of all political debates, conflicts, and divides. Now, if this were my chart, such as it is, I would have added a third column, the roots of freedom and a free society, which would not have matched the other two. So I want to go through these, these, these things comparatively to see how they would have looked had the freedom option been there. So, for example, under sex, marriage, and divorce, Gardner's chart shows that liberals concern consider these to be, quote, private individual matters, end quote, while conservatives consider these matters to be, quote, of paramount public concern, end quote. No particulars in the chart. A freedom position would encompass actually both of these viewpoints, but make it clear what is private and what is public, something we'll be hearing more about a little bit later on today. Now, who you may who you might marry or have sex with is a completely private concern until it becomes a public concern usually when a conflict such a divorce rears its ugly head and the issues of individual responsibilities towards any children or any other entered into agreements that have to be resolved but here i'm only referring to laws of contract being enforced by the government not about quote unquote society or a democratic process imposing sexual values and preferences on anyone, nor insisting on arranged marriages or things like that that they had in the past, etc. 
So there is certainly a, a difference. Under the heading of preferred method of organization, I find this an odd heading to begin with. I don't know that I'd ever even think about it in, in terms of if I were writing a book in this manner. But Gardner argues that liberals prefer top-down, unitary organization, while conservatives prefer bottom-up, natural evolution. Now, I really don't have any preference in this regard. A freedom position would prefer a rational method of organization suitable to what is being organized and for what purpose it's being organized. For example, is it the law we're talking about or is it the economy? If it's economics, then the freedom rule would be laissez-faire and allow the market to organize itself with the necessary legal support to keep the market free of coercion. Top-down or bottom-up? Well, if it's coercion we're talking about organizing in order to control or restrict freedom, I'm opposed to any kind of organizing. <laughs> if it's the use of force to protect and defend life, liberty, and property, well, then I'm for it. Under the heading, The Law, Gardner states that liberals prefer, quote, a uniform code a uniform code law based on natural rights, end quote, while conservatives prefer, quote, an evolved common law based on natural law, end quote. Hmm, natural rights, natural rights and natural law. A freedom position would say that the law exists to protect life, liberty, and property. To do this, the initiation of physical coercion and force must be outlawed and the force of government should be used against those who would use force to violate life, liberty, and property. Sounds completely natural to me, whether you're talking about rights or laws. Talk more about rights a little later on in the show. On religion, Gardner's chart shows that liberals prefer either, this is weird, either deism or outright atheism, which I thought was an interesting, like, how opposite can you get? That's under the liberal column. While conservatives hold that, re quote, religion is the basis of all morals, end quote. Now, a freedom position would recognize that religion can be, in, can be an enshrinement of a moral code, but that the morality in question might be an immoral code as well. Morality goes both ways. A freedom position would recognize that rationality is the true source of morality. And as philosopher John McMurray often reminds us in his writings, to say that someone's irrational is the same as saying that they're immoral or evil. As to the category of international vision, with liberals preferring, quote, one world universalism versus the conservative concept of a, quote, pluralistic community of communities, end quote, a freedom position would probably support both of these visions provided we're talking about freedom and capitalism and would oppose both visions if they were based on totalitarianism and collectivism. Global capitalism? Yes. Global socialism? No. And finally, under his care, his, under, or rather under his category of main thinkers, liberals apparently prefer Voltaire, Rousseau, Condorcet, Diderot, Paine, while conservatives lean to Vico, Herday, Maestre, Hume, and Burke. Now, freedom's main thinkers, historically, a much shorter history than the others, would be, of course, Ayn Rand, Isabel Patterson, John McMurray, Ludwig von Mises, Frederick Bastiat, perhaps, and perhaps one day <laughs> yours truly may be counted among them, but that's for history to decide, not for me. Now, those were the basic categories. Now, I'm sure that when Bill subtitled his chart on the two incompatible narratives of Western civilization, he meant incompatible with each other. 
unfortunately, both columns, liberal and conservative, and both narratives are incompatible with, I think, a lot of the basis of Western civilization, which is also known, ironically for conservatives, as a liberal democracy. Now, I'm not sure of what value is to be derived from being able to answer whether one is a liberal or conservative, given the greater acknowledgement, and Bill acknowledged this, that there's nothing you can really do with this knowledge. For example, if I discovered that I was a liberal or a conservative using this chart, well, so what? What could I do with that? None of the parties with those same names behave in either a liberal or conservative fashion. Pragmatism is the order of their day, and pragmatism is just a, you know, like another weasel word used to hide one's true convictions, or, or better still, to hide the fact that one should be convicted. It struck me as very odd that uh, conservatives would want to be labeled as those against the Enlightenment, even though that appears to be case. Be, you know, wouldn't a counter-enlightenment, as it was phrased in the book, really be an endarkenment? I, I mean, why would you use that particular term? Now, Bill had his idea of the Great Divide. For me, the Great Divide, of course, is between subjectivism and objectivism, and I, I use these terms in their most generic sense. When you have two or more subjectively polarized viewpoints, there's no, there's no possibility of bridging it. It's, like, it's just like all conflicts that are based on faith. It becomes a mere matter of he says, she says. There's no common ground on which we, we agree that we're going to resolve these disputes. This very subjective circumstance is the cause of the divide. And it's also, incidentally, the cause of any unity created by a shared belief, false though that belief may be. You know, subjectivists, by, the, by definition, are not on a search for objective truth. They're on a search for any arguments, rational or irrational, that support their already chosen conclusions or beliefs. When you have two or more objectively polarized viewpoints, which happens in science a lot, there's always a possibility of bridging the divide, because for objective people, evidence, reason, and proof are the ultimate determinants of the truth that they are all in a search of. So objective evidence, reason, and proof are the three things that people who are objective already, you know, implicitly and explicitly agree on, even in the absence of any particular knowledge or, or, or understanding of a particular subject. Now, in her book, The Virtue of Selfishness, Ayn Rand was trying to get people to understand that rational selfishness requires an objective moral code and that altruism, though touted as a moral code, is no such thing. Uh, quote, the concept of, now this is um, Bill talking, this is from Bill, talking on the show last week, not from his book. He said, the concept of self has changed from self-discipline and self-reliance to self-gratification and self-expression, he said. Self-esteem versus duty and obligation. You are esteemed by others. We used to live in a we world, he says, and now we live in a me world. To which I would reply, the world I grew up here, right here in Canada, was much more a me world in the past and is much more a we world now. We've certainly moved politically, at least, from a me world to a we world, from, from almost zero income taxes before World War I in Canada and before 1969 in Ontario, when conservatives introduced it to pay for socialized health care, ir irony of ironies, to a point where our tax rates are once again approaching the point of slavery, which is involuntary coerced servitude for the benefit of others. And there's nothing inconsistent, per se, between self-discipline and self-reliance and 
self-gratification and self-expression. All of these are necessary and good human qualities. Of course, I think by self-gratification, we have to assume that Bill was talking about sex because he brought it up so often. And, and by self-expression, pornography, because he kept bringing them up as if they were a, a huge major problem without letting us really know what he saw the problem as being. He also seemed to avoid my question about whether society would be better off if pornography and gay marriage, etc., should be banned. And, you know, he evaded my question, as all consistent conservatives do in such matters, by saying that he wasn't here to tell us about what he thinks, but about what conservatives think on the subject. And yes, it sounds like conservatives would ban both, and all forms of self-gratification, I have to assume. But as to the issue of the individual versus the group, or the me versus the, the we, I shall defer to Salim Mansour, who was speaking to this very theme at Freedom Party's Politics, his personal dinner event held at the Lamplighter Inn last November 15th. Now, we played a part of this before, and, on, and what he had said, and this was at the dinner, he talked about, and I'm quoting him here, politics is about public affairs, about a good society, about what takes place in the public square. And everything that takes place in the public square is not personal, especially in a liberal democracy. Because when you go left to the extreme, which is a totalitarianism, there is nothing personal. You breathe, you sneeze, you eat, what books you read, what church, mosque, or temple you go to, what you share with your children and friends, everything is political. This is something that those who haven't had a window into the world that is outside of a liberal democracy find hard to understand. Those of us, like, like me, referring to Salim, who come from backgrounds that are not a liberal democracy, there there is nothing personal. And that's the paradox. To be personal or to have something personal is to maintain what is only possible in a liberal democracy, one's sovereignty. This has been the long political battle over 500 years that we have come to in the West, the fight for the individual as sovereign. Now, I got the impression from Bill that he might not agree with that. I don't know. Now, that was said at Freedom Party's November 15 Politics' Personal Dinner, and you can see the entire event on Freedom Party's website, uh, freedomparty.on.ca, or you can listen to the very selection I just read on our November 20th broadcast of Just Right. In any case, the individual is not a means to anybody's end, said Salim, but he or she is an end in himself or herself. Now here's what Salim said next. And so to protect the individual's sovereignty, it is the individual that decides how much of himself or herself he is willing to make it public, that is political. 5%, 20%, 50%, 5%, 20%, 50%, so on. And that can only happen in a society that cares about freedom, that respects the individual, that regards the individual's sovereignty as sacred. I believe that has been eroded, and that's what we are losing out. That's the sense. What we have abandoned is the idea of individual as a sovereign to the idea that individual is more or less a cog in a machine. And that, that was my book, Multiculturalism. That's what has happened to our liberal democracy, why we are losing out. And consequently, what has happened is the personal that is political has become a facade behind which lies a lot of mush, 
we have become a celebrity culture. And we assume, because we have become a celebrity culture, this ha didn't happen overnight, it happened over a period of time, that anything that di distinguishes a person that is good enough for his politics. So we can all tune in to listen to what Barbara Streisand has to say about the current world, because she's such a good damn singer. <laughs> and, and that's where we have arrived, where the personal is sold in the public sphere, where that personal will or does not have any merit to be in the public sphere. What I'm pointing out here is the personal was connected to public service. The personal was not something celebrity. Babe Ruth would not run for presidency, or he would not run for any office. He was the best baseball player, but that's what it was. The same thing you can map in Canadian politics until the phenomena comes to Pierre Elliott Trudeau that every prime minister and every leader in the country was engaged in some way of public service that brought him into the notice of the people, and then came the call to serve the people. We have lost that sense of it. And so consequently, our members in our legislatures, in our House of Commons, and our leaders do not come with that integrity of public service having been done where their merits have been judged by the people to be then elected to the office to be re the representative of the people. And the classic case is the case of Obama now. The man had no record and was lifted to the position of the highest office in the most powerful country in the world on the basis of his DNA and nothing else. And there we are where we are today. That's exactly the problem right now in, our, in, in, in Canada, in our province. The record of performances of our elected representative and why they became elected has very little bearing in terms of the public service that they have done and that the public then could establish and judge them for the merit of why they are electing them. In London North Centre, not that you know, we expected or I had any illusion that we could win the seat, but what was so appalling was that our representative from London North Centre had neither any service before she became a member of the legislature from London North Centre, and then the record and the duration of her office completely and thoroughly disqualified her, and yet she won a thumping victory and went back to represent London North Centre. How do we correct the situation? You know, I don't know. There is no silver bullet out there. I have no idea. But we have a tremendous weight upon ourselves as a country and as a people that if we don't correct it, 
if we don't bite the bullet, if we are not honest with ourselves, then we will lose the shreds of our own individual sovereignty. Much of it has already been lost and will be further lost. Not exactly painting a picture of a, of a bright future, given the direction that we're heading in. And at the same Freedom Party dinner event, FP leader Paul McKeever commented on the whole political process and reminded everyone that government is a gun and that when you vote for your local politician, you're voting for that politician to point that gun in a specific direction and with a specific purpose. And this is why we require freedom, because each of us is so willing to point the gun at the other guy, especially if someone's offering us a, an opportunity to get something from him or her for nothing, and, or at least that's how it seems. And now, getting back to our conversation that we had last week, Bill brought up a very interesting point when he said freedom is not a good in itself. Um, and then he said, I got tired of people citing freedom as a guarantee of of their rights. Now, I agree that freedom is not a guarantee of rights per se, but we have to acknowledge that freedom is the justification for having rights in the first place. You can't, you can't just eliminate those two things from each other. To have a right means being able to say no to a given proposition. If you can't refuse the offer, as the mafia is so stereotypically famous for saying, I've got an offer you can't refuse, well, then you have no rights in the matter, do you? So as ironic and counterintuitive as it may sound, it's more accurate to say that Ontarians have no right to health care, no right to education, or no choice where to buy their electricity. Uh, there's three perfect examples. We have no contractual uh, guarantee of any of these services, yet we're all forced to support the monopoly service providers along with their monopoly labor groups, a system of complete coercion, fraud, and corruption from top to bottom, and we're reading about it in the papers every day. Even when they go on strike and no longer offer a service, that has no effect on our being forced to pay, and that is unjust at its root. Now, Bill said the modern label that has replaced freedom is choice, and that having a free, and he, he sort of lamented that having a free choice legitimizes every type of behavior. Now, I'll agree that choice is not freedom, but, but really, every type of behavior? Does free choice legitimize murder and rape? <laughs> if your answer to this is yes, then you're completely disconnected from both reality and the idea of choice. If your answer to this is no, then clearly having free choice has nothing to do with legitimizing any kind of behavior. It merely defines the difference between having a choice and having no choice. Both of these conditions can and do exist in both free and unfree societies. Unlike freedom, which is a social condition, choice has to be created, like if you really want a choice. Uh, free or not, you can't choose to go to the moon unless someone else, or you yourself, creates that choice by building the necessary uh, technology and having the necessary knowledge. And if either of those things don't exist, then neither does the choice, irrespective of the political environment and irrespective of how much freedom you might have. On speaking to the uh, liberal versus conservative conception of freedom, Bill explained that the liberal, quote, justifies everything with the word choice, freedom of choice, while the conservative thinker says individual freedom is important, it's essential. We're free by nature, because otherwise we can't be moral agents unless we're free, and this is very true but we're also naturally social beings. 
Well, so far, so good. But then Bill Gardner cited Edmund Burke and went, said, freedom when men act in groups is power. Which, though true to me, when I was sitting there, I was thinking, that's kind of a non sequitur to the context of freedom in the discussion. You know, it's true also that totalitarianism, when men act in groups, is also power. People acting in groups to attain power is what we call political activity. And this leads to voting. And voting is assumed to be the defining characteristic of a democracy, which, of course, it is not. Democracy is not the opposite of totalitarianism, said Bill. Democracy and freedom are incompatible, he said. You know, I, I didn't want to get into it then, but actually, democracy and freedom are completely compatible. But I had to clarify that what Bill was talking about was majority rule voting, not democracy as such. I mean, voting exists in all countries, though their majorities are defined differently, including openly communist countries. That's not the proper point of distinction. And again, when, as I asked last week, when was it ever said that freedom was the right to do anything you want? You know, what about the limits on freedom naturally placed by the so-called do-no-harm principle? And here Bill said, this do-no-harm principle ignores and denies what Burke called social freedom. We have to have rights and freedoms of society, which are sometimes in conflict with the freedom of individuals. And boy, did my, <laughs> my hair go up there. This idea is so wrong. Uh, it, it's hard to believe that you can accept it. There, if you're defined a right properly, there are no conflicts between rights when they are properly defined. And groups do not have rights that are any different from the rights of the individuals who comprise any of the groups. If you have 10 people in a room, they don't have 10 times the number of rights versus the guy who's sitting alone in the room next door. Or if you have 20 people in the room, they don't have 20 times the rights. They all still have an equivalent right. It, it, there's no increase in the number of rights when you increase the number of people. Yet that's the assumption of the whole democratic process. Now this concept, uh, you know, of, of individual rights was being attacked by Bill for being a libertarian one, and he went to John Stuart Mill on the harm principle, and he says this principle is feeding us into the hands of the state due to the atomization of society called individualism. The so-called non-aggression principle is just a negative and presents no common good for the people. We should be talking about what's good for everybody, not just about what's good for me. And this has duties and obligations attached to it, he said. Well, when I asked for an example, Gardner discussed democracy and the liberal will. And he said, the conservative asks, don't we have duties and obligations to, other, to others? The conservative view of democracy includes past, present, and future, to which I said I would be a conservative if that, if that was the case, because I agree with that standalone statement. I can't honestly say uh, that past, present, and future aren't in everyone's lexicon, just that some pasts uh, and presents and all futures are entirely fictional. I got this interesting perspective from a Freedom Party member named Barry over the past week, in which, which he wrote, not sure if you've seen this quote, but I think it's very insightful and accurate. I think we're very close to the last phase now, and he referred to Alexander Tyler in 1887, a Scottish history professor at the University of Edinburgh, had this to say about the fall of the Athenian Republic some 2,000 years prior. Namely, a democracy is always temporary in nature. It simply cannot exist as a permanent form of government. Democracy will continue to exist up until that time that voters discover they can vote themselves generous gifts from the Treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates who promise the most benefits from the public Treasury, with the result that every democracy will finally collapse over loose fiscal policy, which is always followed by a dictatorship. 
And he said it goes through this sequence, from bondage to spiritual faith, from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependence, from dependence back to bondage. And that, there you have your cycle, so-called cycle of history, which is really a cycle of politics. And of course, Tyler was equating democracy with majority rule, um, which is normal for most people. But democracy does not relate to majority rule. It only means that the government's authority comes from those who are governed, not that the decisions of the government all come from the government, but that the authority, the government's decision-making authority comes from that. Now, that brings us to our next chapter in this discussion, the labeling of these agents to whom we give the power of the gun of government, liberals and conservatives, whose positions can never be reconciled, according to Bill Gardner in his book, The Great Divide. We'll do what we can to expose these labels when we return after this. If you ever get the chance to travel, don't visit the twin provinces of Applesauce Lorraine, which lie somewhere between France and Baja, California. Not that the scenery isn't breathtaking, it is. In fact, too breathtaking. For the borders of Applesauce Lorraine are ringed with row upon row of Limburger lilies. Actually, this is a blessing in disguise. For in days of yore, warlike nations intent upon invasion were repeatedly repelled by this natural barrier. <laughs> As time went by, nobody had enough fortitude or enough sinus trouble to get by the Limburger lilies. Progress came to a halt, and that is why today, Applesauce Lorraine exists as it did back in the 16th century. But one thing changed. Yesterday, good king once allowed sat on the throne. He did until his half-brother, Francois Villain, paid a visit. Happy birthday, half-brother. I have a gift for you. It is not my birthday. I give it to you anyway. And he did. Applesauce Lorraine had a new ruler, a greedy ruler who emptied the treasury and proceeded to live in a manner to which he was unaccustomed. There were the rat races in the sewers of Paris. Six thousand francs on Jean Valjean. The slave markets of Tangiers. Give me a dozen to go. By the time he returned to Applesauce Lorraine, he was flat broke. He resorted to the most evil way of raising money known to man, taxation. But, Your Highness, we already have income tax and sales tax. Then we'll have thumb tax and carpet tax. Under the yoke of heavy taxation, the people fell to their knees. But one man held out hope. Citizen Philippe Mignon, medium rare. You know what they did in France when they had this problem? They called the three musketeers. Alas, the only musketeer who answered the plea was Athos, who was getting on. In years. You want my advice? Pay the taxes. But he is a tyrant. Pay the taxes. He thinks Claire de Lune is a girl. That is different. We fight. <laughs> Forget I have company. Your pardon. No, no, no. I am the one who bows. You are my guest. But I am your slave. Slave? Up, up, up. You own me now. Own you? No human being has the right to own another. You're free now. You belong to no one but yourself. On this ship, you are at no one's beck and call. You understand that? 
right. I got to change. Fetch me a drink. That audio bite came from what was perhaps one of my favorite of the many Sinbad movies that were made for the theaters. Captain Sinbad's comments reflect not only a wonderful sense of humor, but the viewpoint we heard from Salim Mansour earlier in the show. You know, to be personal or to have something personal is to maintain your own sovereignty. Now, we require some definitions here, and here's where the fun really starts, because as we'll discover... You know, you might find yourself included and not included under several of these definitions under the words liberal, conservative, and things like that. First thing I pointed out to Bill last week about the words like liberal and conservative was that these words are adjectives. They're not nouns, which means that they are words used to describe something else. A liberal what? A conservative what? You know? Uh, conservative about tyranny? Can you be conservative about tyranny? Can you be conservative about freedom? Um, you know, um, what else? You liberal about tyranny? Can you be liberal about freedom? So I decided to dig up some dictionaries, and among them were the Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics, written by Ian McLean and Alistair McLean, 2009. Uh, William Sapphire's Political Dictionary, which was back in 1978. And then a typical Funk and Wagnalls dictionary, and of course Ayn Rand herself. I don't know how many of these we'll get to, but here are the actual official definitions of some of these, and they're very interesting in their own right. This is from the Oxford Concise Dictionary of Politics, and this is how they define conservatism. In general terms, a political philosophy which aspires to the preservation of what is thought to be the best in established society and opposes radical change. Well, you know, myself, I would like to preserve what I believe to be the best in established society, so am I a conservative? But it goes on, it says, However, it's much easier to locate the historical context in which conservatism evolved than it is to specify what it is that conservatives believe. It is clear that ideologically, conservatism can take many different forms. Liberal individualists, as well as clerical monarchists, nostalgic reactionaries, and unprincipled realists have all been called conservatives, regarded themselves as conservative, and demonstrated the typically conservative responses to projects for change. Particular conservative writers have founded their conservatism on individualism as often as on collectivism, on atheism as often as on religious belief. And then liberalism, from the same dictionary, in general, the, the belief that it is the aim of politics to preserve individual rights and to maximize freedom of choice. Well, by this definition, I am very much a liberal. And then it goes on. In common with socialism and conservatism, it emerged from the conjunction of the Enlightenment, the Industrial Revolution, and the political revolutions of the 17th and 18th centuries. Liberalism retains a faith in the possibilities of improvement in the present social conditions, which is related to the idea of progress widely accepted in the late 18th and 19th centuries. That idea embraced the prospects for development in knowledge, in welfare, and, interestingly enough, in morality. Although the confidence in the prospects for progress in some of these respects has now diminished, and then they said, see postmodernism, very interesting, liberalism retains an ameliorative ambition, end quote. And by this point, the definition of a liberal has become very subjective again. It's just an adjective. The amelioration of what? For whose benefit? At whose cost? 
And then, of course, uh, the issue came up libertarianism because Bill called something libertarian socialism, and that was very interesting. Uh, libertarianism refers primarily to a range of theories and attitudes whose common characteristic is that they seek to reverse the progress of collectivism and authoritarianism and to roll back the frontiers of the state. Traditionally, libertarian denoted a believer in free will as opposed to determinism. The opposite, therefore, was a necessitarian. End quote. Now, at this point, many might argue that both Robert and I would fit into the category of libertarian. We support reversing collectivism, and we believe that free will is very much a real phenomenon. But neither of those two qualities necessarily implies that one is moving in the right direction towards freedom, not away from it. Freedom requires government and good governance. Just saying you have a free will and that you're against collectivism is not enough. And I think that that was the very point that Bill Gardner was trying to raise last week. He called this half view of the situation libertarian socialism, which was not as contradictory as it might have sounded. So this, this definition from the dictionary continues. Libertarians are now defined, as now defined, sorry, can be divided into two main camps. The most precise form of libertarianism rests on a belief in the essential separateness of individual persons who possess, quite irrespective of whether or not they're part of a society or subject to laws of a state, a set of inalienable rights, which necessarily include rights to acquire and retain property. Libertarianism in this sense is fundamentally opposed to utilitarianism, as individuals' rights can never be abrogated in the general interest, end quote. So based on this part of the definition, since I agree with these positions, one again might regard me as a libertarian. Ah, <laughs> but the definition regrettably does not end there, and it continues. Paradoxically, a variety of libertarians in the broader sense base their projects for the retreat of the state on arguments which are quite compatible with utilitarianism and even overtly utilitarian. Some libertarians call themselves minarchists, indicating a belief in a minimal or night watchman state which confines its activities to defense of its boundaries and the enforcement of contracts in a minimal body of criminal law. They are quite different from the anarchists who wish to abolish the state in its entirety and institution of property. Libertarians may be accused of taking the state too seriously in the idea of liberty, not seriously enough, end quote. I thought, what a great observation that was, that last one. Libertarians who take the state too seriously become anarchists, while those who do not take the idea of liberty seriously enough always resist any form of governance and governance, uh, both of which are vital to the establishment of anything that we can call freedom. Now, from William Sapphire's political dictionary, he, only, he didn't have a, de a definition for libertarian, but did for liberal and conservative, but not liberalism or conservatism. Liberal, he said, currently one who believes in more government action to meet individual needs. Very interesting. Originally, one who resisted government encroachment on individual liberty. So today's liber liberal is totally the opposite of yesterday's liberal. Conservative, a defender of the status quo. So who, when change becomes necessary in tested institutions or practices, prefers it come slowly and in moderation. Again, doesn't say anything about direction. Today, the more rigid conservative generally opposes virtually all government regulation of the economy. He favors local and state action over federal action and emphasizes fiscal responsibility, most notably in the form of balanced budgets. But there exists a less doctrinaire conservative who admits the need for government action in some fields and for steady change in many others. And then the simple definitions from Funk and Wagnalls, 
a conservative, and this is where it made it clear that it was an adjective, quote, one inclined to preserve the existing order of things. Again, here I have to ask what things. No definition, though all things seem implied. Also opposed to change. What change? From what to what? No answer. Moderate, cautious. Moderate or cautious about what? Liberal, same thing, adjective. Characterized by or inclined towards opinions or policies favoring progress or reform, as in politics or religion. Well, reform of what? To what? Um, you know, also defined as not intolerant or prejudiced, broad-minded. And I'm thinking, well, broad-minded or intolerant about what? Again, you have to ask these questions. There are, you know, these adjectives by themselves just don't stand on their own. And, of course, um, Ayn Rand was opposed to conservatives very strongly, to liberals <laughs> and to libertarians, and she had a lot strong to say about them. But those are issues that you've heard us talk about a lot on this show before. But now we get into the next dimension of, of the whole uh, discussion of conservatism and liberalism, and that's the religious dimension. And here is where I think we use another word rather indiscriminately and rather undefinedly, and that's the word God itself. And that's the issue we'll re be returning to when we come back from this. Hey, uh, thanks for keeping me company. Oh, I'm happy to. I think getting out of the apartment will do you good. So, where are we headed? Well, if it's okay with you, I'd like to go to a temple. Buddy, trust me, you don't want to convert to Judaism. <laughs> I mean, I know I make it look cool, but <laughs> it's not all briskets and dreidels. <laughs> I meant a Hindu temple. Oh, okay. It's not like Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, right? Some bald guy with horns isn't going to rip my heart out. Dude, that movie's an imperialist fantasy that makes the followers of a beautiful and peaceful religion look like a bunch of bloodthirsty barbarians. You love that movie. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> I'm surprised to see you suddenly get religious. Why? Because I've known you for 10 years, and you've never gone to temple. You never talked about believing in God. And last Diwali, I watched you eat two pounds of sacred cow at a Brazilian steakhouse. Religion is a very personal thing. I do go to temple, I just I don't talk about it. Yeah, but you're a scientist. So? So as a scientist, you believe the way to understand the universe is through facts and evidence, and now you're counting on some blue chick with a hundred arms to help you? That is so offensive. Does everything you know about Hinduism come from Indiana Jones? No, there's also a poo from The Simpsons. <laughs> well, lots of scientists believe in God. Okay, Newton, uh, Faraday, Pascal, all were believers. Even Einstein was famous for attacking quantum theory on the grounds that God does not play dice with the universe. Well, of course he believed in God. He slept with Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Actually, there's no proof of that. But you believe in your religion, I'll believe in mine. <laughs> My first Hindu temple. You see behind the fountain that uh, tower that looks like a pyramid? It's called a shikara. It symbolizes the, the connection between the human and the divine. Huh. I always thought it was mini golf. <laughs> Alright, shall we? Yeah. What, just, uh, is there anything I should know before I go in? Like what? 
like, am I dressed okay? <laughs> really? So every other place you've been, you thought this was fine? <laughs> I know you're under a lot of pressure, so I'm gonna let that pass. <laughs> Sorry, you're right. I'm so stressed. But you know what? Whenever I walk into that temple, I realize that whatever happens, it's okay. We're all part of an immense pattern, and though we can't understand it, we can be happy to know that it's 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 working its will through us. That's nice. <laughs> Whether you call it God or the universe or the self, we're all interconnected, and that's just a beautiful son of a bitch. That guy just dinged my car. <laughs> so, so there, courtesy of the Big Bang Theory, the show, not the theory we can see a clear illustration of the subjectivity with which people regard the word God. Now, of course, Einstein was not being literal when he stated that God does not play dice, and and this statement, as well as its greater meaning, was explored in a few of our previous uh, Just Right broadcasts. Uh, You can check out shows number 258, 247, and go all the way back to show number 24, where... I basically spent the whole hour just talking about the four topics, God, religion, morality, and state. And and there was not much more to add to those issues. But I, I was looking at some of the headings on, on our topics on some of the previous shows, um, the God factor on being versus a being, and gambling is a vice because God does not play dice. Or on another show, God plays with loaded dice, taking a quantum leap in thinking about the universe. But... The whole issue of God is central to so many political and uh, politi- to politics in general because religion and politics have always been mixed in together. And there are, of course, people who would say if there is no God, then morality is an opinion, as did uh, uh, um, Speaker Dennis Prager, who I heard on Andrew Lawton's show earlier this week, talking about the Ten Commandments still being the best moral code, which I could, could agree with to a point. But the belief in God is also an opinion, and the question to ask is the opinion you have of God or your, your belief in God, is it rational and, and or real? If the answer is no to either of those two propositions, then the opinion's likely to be false. The word God is sort of like an adjective, like the adjectives liberal and conservative. Without a clear identification, you don't really know what is being talked about. You know, God is what? Well, the standard starting definition is always God is the supreme being. And every nuance and every interpretation of God that I've seen begins essentially with that premise. In my own personal life, I have no problem with the word God, the supreme, as the supreme being, you know, the existence of all things known and unknown, the being of all things known and unknown. You know, we have chosen to call that God. It makes it easier. Now, in my political and public life, I do have a problem with the word God because there's a great danger here. When I, who am not a literalist, uh, you know, about abstract concept, when I use the word God, well, you now know what I mean by it. But when someone else uses the word, you'll find as many differences of opinion on what or who God is as there are people who use it. I discussed this reality in detail on shows past. So why do people use the word God instead of being specific about what they mean by God? The answer is not very godlike, I'm afraid, and I think it's because they're being intellectually and morally dishonest with themselves and with others. They're trying to avoid an unspoken truth or a contradiction they cannot resolve or some kind of bad intention. 
most revealingly, and we've discussed this before too, believers in God do not seem to care that others who may believe in God define God in the same way. Any concept of God will do, since among believers themselves, it assures this club of, of mutual denial. It's not about what you believe in, just that you believe, rather than that you think or you reason. So those who do not believe in a God concept at all, or who, like me, are not afraid to define what I mean by God when I use the term, thereby making it objective, were labeled atheists, as if that were some kind of opposing religion or organized opponent or movement. The word atheism merely defines what one is not, or what one does not believe in, a literal deity, not what one does believe in. So, again, atheism is a useless frame of reference if one wishes to determine the latter, that is, what you do believe in. Atheism is just another word that we can toss into the meaningless word pile of political confusion. It especially doesn't belong in the world of politics, nor does its counterpart. Now, you know, so getting back to that statement, if there's no God, then morality will only be an opinion. You know, I could agree with this statement if I knew that Mr. Prager's view of God was synonymous with my own, even if not identical. Then the statement would read more objectively, if one does not recognize that existence exists and that reason is required, then morality is just an opinion. And that would be correct. It would be consistent with the known laws of nature, which, as we discussed in great detail only a few weeks ago, are descriptive and not prescriptive. Either way, the God concept is an axiom like existence itself. It cannot be scientifically proven nor disproven. You'd always end up with a contradiction or a dead end. And I guess a dead end was where I felt I was sort of constantly being led by Bill's use of the words liberal and conservative last week, and hence, I guess, my frustration. Um, here, you know, Bill had no way of reconciling his, his unreconcilable definitions of liberal and conservative when confronted with the evidence that politically they think and act alike. He avoided speaking to these contradictions by changing the subject or switching over to a broader discussion of democracy. So, you know, if, if you ever see these words or run across these words, beware, they're a danger signal. And I call them the five meaningless words that, that probably cause more confusion and harm to freedom and Western civilization than any others I can immediately think of. And those words would be liberal, conservative, libertarian, pragmatic, and God. <laughs> Although each of these words have definitions, the definitions themselves have no objective meaning. And, and that's part of their definitions. That's the funny part. You know, even when you read about conservatives, it says, well, you really can't tell what a conservative actually believes, but here's a definition of a conservative. They kind of think this, except they also think the opposite. So you're sitting there with this loose definition that just leaves everything very fuzzy. And if you're actually trying to resolve a problem, you cannot leave words fuzzy. Anymore, you could leave numbers fuzzy if you're trying to resolve a mathematical problem. Now, Freedom and tyranny are conditions, social and political conditions, created by the ideas that those who live in such conditions impose upon themselves and impose upon others. And, you know, freedom advocates can only do so much in a climate of irrationality and, and subjectivism. We can lead the horses to water, but we can't force them to drink it, nor can we save them from drowning in it. So, conclusion... 
conservatism, like liberalism and libertarianism and libertarian socialism and pragmatism, are all roads to nowhere and roads to anywhere. Adjectives one and all, floating abstractions that will float in whatever directions the wind or waters will take them. And beyond following the path, you know, in the right direction, you'll never know what will happen on our next show, at which we'll invite you to join us again next Thursday. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See ya. To black and white under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Leonard, what do we say about being a gullible weenie? And he's just so frustrating. Because you're trying too hard. You need to do something else. Get your mind off it. Hey, how about we bring back Anything Can Happen Thursdays? Hey, that's good. Why'd you guys stop doing that? You made fun of us, said it was stupid. Yeah, sounds like me. All right, come on, Sheldon, what do you say? All right. I officially reinstate Anything Can Happen Thursday. Great. What, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Starting to remember the problem with Anything Can Happen Thursdays. So. <laughs>